Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Megan Figueroa from the Department of Psychology at the University of Arizona. Very nice to speak to you today, Megan. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I would also like to say that uh, she has a podcast of her own called The Vocal Fries, uh, which has a um, tagline of don't be an asshole. So I will do my best in this interview not to be. <laughs> I'm sure you're going to do just fine. <laughs> so, I hope to do the same, right? Always. <laughs> so the article we're going to be speaking about is uh, podcasting past the paywall, how a diverse media allows more equitable participation in linguistic science. And this came across my desk because... Uh, probably because this is something that I write about and upload into academia, and this was recommended to me as a paper. So kind of to start off with, as a, as a fellow podcaster, but the people who are listening to us may not be, um, for mm -hmm. people who don't know, from your experience, could you explain the difficulties caused by the paywall in academic journals and how podcasting helps to kind of get by this? Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, in my paper, I talk about two different paywalls. Um, the financial paywall, which is one that we're all familiar with if we are in academia or if, if one has tried to access material um, that has been uh, written, produced by people in academia, is that you will hit this financial paywall where they want you to spend $30, $45 of, on a single article. Or if you want to uh, subscribe to the whole journal, it's something like, you know, it could be something like $2,000 a year or mm -hmm. something like this up to, I, I don't even know what it is at this point. But um, so this financial paywall where it's like, even if I have $30, really, like, do I want to spend it on this? I just want the information that is in there that I am actually entitled to because I know at least in the, you know, the U.S us or even in I, I write in the in the article the united nations has a declaration that science is to be for the people and to be accessible to the people um so i shouldn't have to be you know paying my hard-earned 30 dollars to get to this material and then there's the psychological paywall that i describe um as all of the jargon um and it's not necessary. I, I I think I describe it as um, how the use of esoteric language um, is unnecessary. Um, I feel that 100%. I had to relearn how to write, basically, mm -hmm. when I got my PhD, because the way that, quote unquote, scientists are meant to write in, for these peer-reviewed journals is really, really hard to wade through. And it, mm -hmm. it's something you have to learn how to read, too. So it's not a matter of intelligence. It's like, I have to be trained into this new way of writing and way of consuming whatever's written in there because it's written in such a needlessly um, strange and esoteric way. So the, those two, those is coming from both of the fronts there. Yeah, I, I I don't I don't read a lot of uh, psychology papers. That's more uh, John, my, my co-host's mm -hmm. uh, field, um, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, there is a kind of uh, academic shibboleth that you need to access in order to kind of demonstrate that this is necessary. And this 
seems to be more prevalent in the social sciences than in the hard sciences, because you can write a, a, a math paper with 14 <laughs> co-authors and it's only like five right. pages long because the truth is the truth. Whereas right, right. Uh, when it comes to things like in, in my area of uh, linguistics or perhaps in the area of psychology, you kind of need to convince the person who is reviewing your paper that you know what you're talking about by going by going through these these gateposts. And I think one of them is uh, right. the you know this kind of uh, academic jargon so how do yes. you think that podcasting cuts through uh, this yes. specifically you know what the biggest thing is so sorry that was the part of your question I was like there's a part of the question though that I haven't <laughs> answered um okay so I set myself up though so those two things right um even if you do get through the financial paywall the psychological paywall um like I said is is there it's just like the next barrier and so with podcasting, it's nice because people don't talk mm. like or even sign the way they write. And like I said, even uh, worse when it comes to to this kind of phenomenon that we talk very differently than we write is then the scientific writing that we're required to do is even stranger mm. <laughs> than than the way we talk, than the way we would perhaps write an email to a friend or even to a colleague. Um, and so with podcasting, people aren't, you know, I don't want someone to come on and read me their, their article. I want them to chat with me. And mm. if you chat with me, if we chat with each other and we ask questions and we're not afraid to admit that, oh, I didn't know that. Or can you please explain that to me further? This is new to me. Um, that more people have access to this information because they don't have to worry about the financial or the psychological paywall. No, I, I completely agree with you. And uh, we have a slightly different uh, slogan over here. I mean, of course, you have Don't Be an Asshole, which right. I would prefer for most of the uh, interviewees, and, <laughs> and, and they never have, thankfully. But yeah. we like to say um, a face to the name and a voice to the words. So yeah. it's, mm -hmm. um, it's different. You have to put people in a different mental space in mm -hmm. order for them to uh, articulate things mm -hmm. Uh, verbally than mm -hmm. uh, they would uh, on the page. And I want to bring up um, a word that you used in your paper, which is uh, the, the word outrage. And mm -hmm. you note that there is an ability to express outrage in, in podcasting in a way that perhaps, because it's a, a verbal medium, you can actually express and then explain where it wouldn't be if it was a, a written medium. Given the emotional nature of the word, would you say that hearing a person's voice has a kind of a humanizing effect uh, on the message that they're trying to put across? Yeah, absolutely. And if you're the podcaster and you're, you're, you're listening to their message, um, you're able to actually put a face to it as well, mm. because a lot of research is done on communities that will never read articles about them. So this is a big point for me because I have an episode on my podcast where I talk about the 30 million word gap mm -hmm. uh, as something that is very hurtful to me. Um, I read literature citing something hurtful all of the time because it's in my field. And I was just like, is anyone else seeing this? And mm -hmm. so with a podcast I had on my friend, Dr. Nelson Flores, um, we were both just like able to be outraged that this was a thing. And then with that, 
I was like, okay, I'm not alone. Because mm. I just see so many citations. I just see citations. People keep citing it. And I'm like, this is really hurtful. Does anyone else see it? Does anyone else feel it? Um, could, you, could you be specific? What, what, what necessarily was it? Was it um, in relation to language or? Yeah. So the third million work app assumes, starts with the assumption that children from um, low and working class families are not getting sufficient language to be users. And I'm a linguist, I'm a psycholinguist that studies child language development. And that's just blatantly false mm. as, as a scientific, um, from a scientific standpoint. And it's also deeply <laughs> offensive to me as someone who grew up working class mm. and see my family and community described in this literature the way that it is. Mm. And this is specifically... Um, I, I mean, I have read your paper, but mm -hmm. uh, and I do uh, encourage people to go and read it once again. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the name. It's, it's available through um, Megan's uh, website. Uh, it's called Podcasting Past the Paywall, How Diverse Media Allows More Equitable Participation in Linguistic Science. And um, I, I don't mean this in a disparaging way. It's only seven pages. It's not, it's not too long. It gets right to the point. And uh, the 30 million word gap really does stick out in the middle of your paper as something that perhaps motivated you to to write this absolutely together. right so what is your uh if we can discuss it what what is your um argument uh against this if we were to if we were to steel man this argument what is yes. your what is your argument against it against the 30 million word gap right yeah in which i just want to note that it has transformed itself over the years since um this um published as a monograph in 1995 mm. um so it's kind of changed from 30 million word gap to word gap to talk gap to language gap. So they yeah, keep moving the, the, the mile these, marker down the road. Right. These, these concepts tend to modulate themselves over the years to fit the space that they want to operate in. You know? Exactly what they're doing. Um, and so my argument as a linguist, one, all children, all typically developing children will learn the language to which they're exposed with no direct teaching. Hmm. Two, all language varieties are logically equal. And three, language is made up of more than just words. These three things are so very important and have been shown, I don't even wanna say scientifically, they've been shown by looking at each other hmm. as humans. <laughs> language is so human. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, certainly anthropologists have been saying this stuff too for years. Um, not that there aren't, you know, <laughs> racist or classist anthropologists, but, but, you know, like, okay. So, you know, with these, these axioms of linguistics that, you know, if you're working from, which again, the first one, all children will learn language without direct teaching. I mean, mm. we only, what well, we have like millennia <laughs> or whatever to, to show this to be true when someone cites the word gap uncritically, they are starting from a foundation saying that depending on the environment that a child is raised in, they won't learn language correctly. And there's not a correct way to learn language. That's also a fact. And so it's really offensive when they describe the environments in which children will not learn, quote unquote, you know, correctly. Um, 
it sounds very familiar to me or you know it it, it would it would sound very or look very familiar to if you know my cousins read it or you know a lot of people I love and a lot of people that I don't even know um mm. that I know would be offended by it um and so basically they're telling us your language environment wasn't good enough I just needed to know that other people were seeing this because I I mean <laughs> I have a doctorate in linguistics mm. but I but grew up in this, you know, environment that they say was impoverished. They use mm. the word impoverished a lot versus rich. So, I mean, getting into neoliberalism and capitalism and all that stuff. But yeah, that this environment that they call impoverished. Um, yet I had loving parents, and um, you know, I learned I learned our language just fine. Well, is this this is kind of is this a kind of like social or sociocultural? offshoot of the input hypothesis that you you it's the quality of the language that is you know being presented to you in your formative years yeah. that, that's kind of what I got from um your explanation oh, of it yes quality is the key word too because this is another shift so quality you will see the word quality right. everywhere right now and that's exactly it yeah the idea that <laughs> selectively legitimizing some language input to children mm. as quality or high quality mm. and others not mm. is an example of linguistic racism because what we see happening over and over again is that historically and systematically minoritized groups that are being described in this way right and it's uh you can have very high quality of uh input and uh, a kind of support of your output, uh, regardless mm -hmm. of your socioeconomic status, as you say, like right. uh, you know, yeah. two, two parents in the home is is very important. Um, a lot of books in the home, uh, very important. The ability to choose your own uh, inputs. It's something mm -hmm. that I've discussed a lot with my wife. We have we have two children. We have a mm -hmm. uh, two complete walls of books, mm -hmm. um, where that you know of all kinds of genres that um you know they can whenever they want to and we had to get them yesterday to yesterday was sunday they had to tidy, tidy up their room because there's just too many books on the floor yeah and... that sounds like me as a child <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it's, it's one of those happy problems to have which is kind of like put them back on the bookshelf and then as you leave the room you're kind of smiling just being like oh, this is the best thing ever like right, you know, they're, right. they're teaching themselves um uh, in in what they enjoy so um, let's get back to kind of um let, let's keep mm -hmm. on this topic but also on podcasting given the wide variety of podcasts that are available now be it you know in relation to language or academia like we're talking about here or sports gaming um travel cooking any of these things and um, do you think that this um medium given uh, how accessible it is 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 perhaps pushing back against the possibility of access to uh language where even young people will be able to access the things that they're interested to and get a lot of, not to use the word in a pejorative way, but like quality input in things that they're interested <laughs> right. in. Right. Well, yeah. So I, I write in my, in my piece as well. I totally didn't take it as offense when you said it's like seven pages. That was on purpose. I mean, right. I wanted it to be like, you can assign it to an undergrad class. Oh, I will. Um, oh, good. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, mm. no. And and, and I do believe I wrote it in a way that's just not like seems applicable to linguists or applied mm. linguists or, you know, um, it's, it's true across the board. Um, I say that if 
young people or older people might be trying to, you know, have a change in their life and maybe they're going back to school. If they have access to this kind of information, what if linguistic science is something that excites them? Hmm. And then we get, you know, more different uh, diversity of thought then. Um, if people that would have not otherwise ever dared pick up a linguistics book, even at, like at a used bookstore or something, um, this might be a good entryway into linguistics and then some pursue. And that will be good in the long run because we'll have more people writing about science and doing science. I, I agree. I, the, the reason I say I will is because I'm, I'm starting this year teaching. I've been in teaching for 20 years now, but I'm actually teaching one of the courses that I wanted to teach from the very beginning, which is TESOL. And I'm teaching TESOL to uh, a new group of students at our uh, university graduate students called uh, Teaching Fellows, who we're trying to encourage to remain at the university after they finish their graduate degrees. Mm -hmm. To become teachers in their field because you know right. it would be a lost opportunity for people to go through seven or eight years at your university and then go and take right. talent to another university whereas right. if you come in house and i think um one of the things in tesol is trying to encourage people to you know as you say view variety uh, as an important part of the language and not some kind of deficit thinking Right. Um, could you give us some background in, I know this piece was on your work in podcasting, but could you give us some background in your research where you've mm -hmm. been looking into this? Um, I mean, you said that you, your area is childhood linguistic development. Yeah. So, um, it started with, well, it really was after my dissertation I was expanding my, my thinking outside of the dissertation, which is nice because it's so narrow, right? Like your hmm. dissertation topic is so, so, so narrow. It's like, oh, great. Now I can read more um, developmental literature um, and see, and, you know, just move beyond. I, I studied the past tense ED in English. This is very narrow. So now I can hmm. look at other structures and see what's happening. But I just kept reading literature and kept seeing Hart and Reasley, 1995, cited over and over and over again and it often followed a sentence that i found really offensive um and so it started me down this path of looking i just wanted to i bringing together like feminist uh studies um like sociology anthropology education um indigenous studies to ex like get all the history i could to start explaining deficit models um and I believe Richard Valencia, 1997, was the first to to really talk about um, deficit thinking toward maybe just maybe language, but maybe just in general about certain populations. So I knew that I was dealing with a problem where, or a situation where the 30 million word gap, talk gap, language gap, whatever, quality input um, was a form of deficit thinking. But I wanted mm -hmm. to trace because I wanted to prove to myself my hypothesis, which was, oh no, this is just, I'm at the end of this road is going to be racism <laughs> and colonialism. And it's true. Um, so, you know, I've been reading all sorts of things to kind of just pinpoint where this all started. And like, for example, it was like 1960s when, when um, psychologists were describing 
African-American language or, you know, the kind of communities that Black children grow up in um, as culturally deprived, meaning mm. that um, basically their linguistic, uh, there's linguistic deprivation here. Mm. Mm. And so, I mean, there's earlier even accounts of this too, but, you know, that morphed into things like standardized testing, the, you know, IQ, the bell curve, Mm. you know, just kind of race science, kind of very racist stuff. Um, Indian boarding schools started reading about because here is again, another time where they're saying we have to send your kids away because you are not <laughs> um, doing it right, basically. Mm. And what they wanted was to eradicate the language. I mean, this was a goal of Indian boarding schools um, in both Canada and the US. So mm. this exact idea is not new. It's just repackaged in language that is less offensive to some people, um, maybe even coded, but certainly right, but not coded is, for everyone. How, and how is this manifest today in, in 2022? Is it, um, can you point to anything in, uh, for example, um, you know, the, the, the syllabi that are brought forward by the uh, Department of Education or the textbooks that are recommended? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, when, well, this is, I guess this is getting to be years ago now because 2014 was a long time ago. Uh, I'll start mm. there though. Um, the Clinton Foundation here in the US, um, they had a subsidiary that was called Too Small to Fail. And it was all based on Hart and Reasley 1995. And so all of their promotional stuff was talk to your baby, find, you know, talk to or if they can talk back, you just need to talk through everything they have to hear the more words, the more words, the better, the more words, the better. And they even did a summit at the White House with this. Um, and so you will see this in at least US government policy all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, me just reading peer reviewed articles in the year 2022, I'm seeing things like comparing quality language input to the um, like how long so, um, someone breastfeeds. And I'm like, you're just talking, this is just a class analysis. This has nothing to do with language, but people keep, <laughs> uh, you know, correlation is not causation, but they keep finding these things that are basically just class-based and saying that language is better because of this. Uh, so you're saying that they based this uh, policy upon the paper against which you are strongly arguing. Yep. And, and, oh, and one more. Uh, so yeah. this foundation called Lena, which has made this thing called a talk pedometer, basically, where, you know, now research studies can be done or like home visit programs can be done where you put this little device on the, it'll record everything. And then we'll tell you how many words you spoke to your kid and how many conversational turns there were. And then we'll talk to you about how you can be better. So this Lena um, is literally, again, based off of Hart and Reasley, and I have, yeah. What was, what, was this a targeted program to, as you said, um, people in perhaps socioeconomically depressed circumstances, or was this done to everybody across the board equally? Um, it depends. So if you're doing, um, like, for a peer-reviewed journal, they'll have, like, you know, okay, we're going to have some amount of middle-class kids because, or, you know, so these things, but interventionally, they're going into communities of color 
um, going into low resourced, purposefully low resourced, uh, you know, communities. Right. Um, so it's so, like it's it's a it's a problem both ways, um, and and people are very invested in this, and I see, and I see names of people who are invested in Lena and who who are getting lots and lots of grants because of this. Um, well, who? Yeah. And this is the whole point of it. I mean, when it comes yeah. to the apportionment of funds, who would not want to give money to help out if there is this huge gap? If this if that if this is true, right, right. Who who wouldn't want to invest in helping children have, um, you know, a, a, as good a linguistic output as any other child in right in and their then circumstances? Not knowing it's based in bad science, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Because it seems like a magic bullet. And oh, it's so simple. It's this simple. But I say time and again, there is no, you cannot talk <laughs> your way to your kids out of intergenerational poverty. It's just not going to happen. That's not what this is. Like, and yet this is what they're selling because there are people um, like Gollum Cossack, some others that are in this row. Um, I can send some materials to you. Mm -hmm. um, these people that write defenses of this, of Hart and Reasley saying, no, we can't move away from this. Um, you know, this is the, this is what we need to focus on. And they're still doing that. And well, well I mean, yeah. was, was it not? And, and I don't believe that they're, I don't believe that they're right wing, but wasn't it the, the Brookings Center that basically did a uh, analysis that suggested and the way that you're reacting, this is not a video podcast, this is only an audio podcast, the way you're reacting suggests that you know where I'm going <laughs> with this, um, that basically the three things that would get you out of um, intergenerational um, poverty would mm -hmm. be finishing high school, getting a job and not becoming pregnant before you get married. Um, <laughs> and would you, would you agree that uh, these interventions, while based on perhaps poor science or uh, agreeably you know, bad mm -hmm. science, mm -hmm. have actually assisted um, students, uh, you know, socioeconomically disadvantaged students in actually getting at least one of those things right. In terms of what we're talking about right now? In terms of, of it, it, it graduating high school. Um, getting... The word stuff? Yeah. Yeah, no. Okay. I, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> I, I don't think it's helping at all. Um, and of course there are studies, and you know what you said, the Brookings, I believe um, Golenkov and Hirschpasik have a Brookings, the 39 words, let me find it. We are live Googling here. Yes, sorry. No, it's fine. Uh, no, this, this, is, this is good. <laughs> I, 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 I hope to get into this kind of stuff in, uh, in these uh, interviews because um, while I, I complete, I, while I, I, I'm on, on your side with this, I think it's mm -hmm. really important to have the discussion to get all of these yeah. points out. Sure. So uh, when we, eventually end up on some kind of panel where decisions are being made and things like right. uh you know funding is being decided that we can articulate these points as clearly as possible absolutely well you know what um Golenkoff has her own things with all of her writings okay here we go talking with children matters defending a 30 million word gap and so it's Golenkoff, Hoff, Rowe, Thomas, Lamanda, and Hirschpasik who are people that I see uh, cited time and again, as well as Hart and Reasley. And they start off right away with um, talking about 
uh, Betty Hart and Todd Reasley, and I five study. Mm. Um, and so they are firm believers that there's even a beautiful quote that I pulled out because it was like, we need to know what these children are. We need to know the differences between these two groups so that we may intervene. And I ask intervening for differences. And so even the word difference has become coded for deficit in the literature. Because, it, also, it also suggests that, 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 that there are two groups, that there are two distinct groups. Exactly. Which, um, there are way too many variables within right. that. Okay, so not, not, to, not to go too far down on, on this, because I, I want to kind of mm -hmm. keep, keep it slightly broad and also on the topic, yeah, yeah. Of, pod, on topic of podcasting. Mm -hmm. But um, so where should we be in, if the Clinton Foundation came to you, for example, mm -hmm. and said, look, we have this amount of money, and based on your experience and based on your research, where should we be investing it in order that it has the, the best effect for the most number of children? I would be feel like the worst linguist in the world because I would say you shouldn't spend it on language. You, you don't need to spend it there. That's right. not where you need to spend it. And I think that podcasting helps with that. And I hope because I talk to people all the time that, like, oh, I heard your podcast or, you know, like I do, you know, people listen to it. So I know that it's reaching people. Mm. And if it's in, and so our um, episode on the 30 million word gap is one of the top 10 that we've ever done mm. um, in terms of listeners. I actually think it might be top five. Um, I'm not the numbers person, but we have <laughs> been, we've been a podcast for five years. I believe that it is up in top five of most listened. Mm. Um, and what is that? I mean, that says so much. And so I know that this 30 million word gap or, or people like um, that are citing it still who use it as their foundation, like Gollenkoff and Hirsch and Pasek and all these people, they're, you know, working with Brookings and they have um, a lot of other ways that they can talk to the public um, about this. I'm hoping podcasting, even if it's, you know, listening to even our episode, you know, on it are like, okay, this is enough for me to stop and think. My my dissertation advisor, who's mm -hmm. also my boss right now, she actually said in an introduction to me of a talk I did that um, intellectually, it's been really lovely to have me because my thoughts or whatever, but she's like, but I also think about like the social justice role because mm -hmm. learning from Megan, I have actually stopped in um, panels looking at grants and saying, look at what they're doing right here right <laughs> and it's been about like socioeconomic status or um assuming that the child is deficit in some way immediately she's saying the question she said that she would intervene and say these questions are being asked assuming that these children are deficient hmm. okay well let, let's focus in on podcasting and mm -hmm. uh you can keep it on this topic if you want or you can move on to something else in psychology if you want to as well mm -hmm. but uh do you have a do you have a wish list of people who you would like to interview for your <laughs> podcast yeah i mean and and and, uh, and if and if you could what what would be the topic that you spoke about it, uh, with them yeah you didn't give me this question beforehand <laughs> Oh no! I, I just okay. Just give you some time, time to think about it, uh, yeah. and also for people who might be interested in joining the podcast uh, in the future, I always send four or five questions ahead of time, ahead of time, to yeah. uh, to kind of prime 
the yeah, conversation yeah. and we've and we've, we've run past those fairly quickly and usually other things yeah. come up uh, in the discussion um yeah. uh, so, have i missed something or am i just being too no 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 i i'm just I, this to is, the point <laughs> this is just a, this is just a, a question because I, the reason i bring it up and again to give you more time to think um yeah. the way that john drew me into this podcast project was mm -hmm. to say um because i was his second interviewee and mm -hmm. then he said could you recommend anybody else and i kind of you know sent him three or four people he said i don't know these people i don't know who they are how about you join in and I was like, oh, I don't know if that's the thing I want to do. But then he said, look, other, other people that you want to talk to are people who you've cited mm -hmm. the papers, you have, you know, you've kind of seen them from afar at a, uh, at a, at a conference, but you prefer to have a face-to-face -face conversation with them. And I, I rattled off a few. And luckily, I've spoken to about three or four of them. I've spoken to Dr. Aya Matsuda. Um, Mm -hmm. and Jennifer Jenkins, Nobuyuki Hino, uh, Dr. Ahmad Maboub, and mm -hmm. uh, these are people who whose names I had only seen, and that's where that slogan comes from, so like a face to the name uh, and a voice yes, to the word. Yes, yes, yes. And so I just was interested to know, given our common interest in, in contacting people who uh, who interest us, and that, that's my mm -hmm. uh, introduction to the podcast every time, you know, we, we speak to uh, people with interesting works and try to learn a little bit more about them. Mm -hmm. Is there anybody yeah, you'd okay. like to speak to? So, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so like I have been able to interview, so I mentioned before, um, mm -hmm. which was the 30 million word gap episode. That was like a dream come true because I had just learned from his writings um, and, to and to have him there and now call him a friend <laughs> because of it um that has been so nice so I've already gotten to we've interviewed some amazing people that I've just seen their names and I wanted to talk to them so badly um but one that is on my list um is uh Dr so Dr Safiya U Noble um who I believe is a MacArthur genius right now <laughs> so it's a little bit harder to get her now um but she wrote this book called Algorithms of Oppression How Search Engines Reinforce Racism and so I really wanted to talk to her on the show um, so that our listeners would just understand that, and I think it's about linguistic discrimination that, you know, they know that language plays a big part in our lives. But if there's some person that just didn't really get it, I would love to talk to Dr. Noble because it's embedded everywhere, even what we put into Google. Um, you know, what are we reinforcing there with our language, <laughs> or with our search terms, um, and what Google spits back at us and what the algorithms are doing. Um, mm. And so that's definitely uh, um, <laughs> for sure that I'll tell you that I also want to talk to people that work in the areas of um, mental health and criminal justice because there are real literal life or death situations where language is a big player um, and we into that yet and that's like a big area I'd like to get into because again reinforce the idea that this impacts us all um, even if it doesn't impact you in a way where it becomes life or death as it does for many communities um 
I would at least hope that, as we say, you're not an asshole and would be concerned about your fellow human and mm. knowing that these things are happening to them because of something like language that we all mm. share. Yeah. Oh. Well, uh, for those of you at home playing the Lost in Citations drinking game, uh, Chris is about <laughs> to mention. Chris is about to mention that he went to law school, but I did go to law school, and <laughs> and the criminal justice angle is something that I'm very interested in in Japan because mm -hmm. the criminal justice system in Japan has a very large network of people who are bi or multilingual in Japanese and other languages. And mm -hmm. I, I won't mention the name of the person to you know, protect her anonymity, but I would really like to interview her. She's a former colleague of mine who mm -hmm. is called in the middle of the night, has to get on a train and like, you know, can't come into work, has to go, um, you know, literally a thousand kilometers away by train to help someone from her home country who has been arrested in, in some major metropolitan area. And the interactions that she has to have with the criminal justice service, with the police, with the individual, and that, and when she retires from this work, I would like to talk to her about it, perhaps in non-specific terms, but it is yeah. something that I'm very interested in. Because in Japan, as you know, there's like a 99% conviction rate. It's ridiculous. And most of these come through confessions. And uh, false confession. Well, not, not necessarily false confessions, but oh, oftentimes okay. forced confessions. They're like, well, you could get 12 months or you could get 10 years. Right. And so this is kind of something. Now, of course, my, my friend can't talk about it while she's in the middle of it. But I would really right. like to know how these things go down linguistically, because it oh, must yeah. be a very, very stressful situation being a foreign national yeah. uh, and knowing that you could be facing a very, very long sentence unless just you just sign this paper. Oh, so, we do that in the US and they use something called the read technique and it's basically, give, you know, it's legal. You can lie to them and tell them that if you just confess to this, then, you know, it's going to be so, so much better for you. Here's what will happen. We'll make a deal. Mm. And all of those are lies. Mm. Um, the read technique, I think it's in, Cal uh, in Canada as well. Um, and, and so I've read a lot of studies recently about coercive questioning, the discursive nature of coercive questioning and what would make someone say something that wasn't true. And I can see myself, the thing is that people are like, why would someone lie? Why would someone confess something they didn't do? And I can see myself doing it when I read descriptions of the discursive nature the aggressive discursive nature of hmm. these interactions of these interrogations well this this all comes down to uh, and this is probably the the last point of discussion but i think we're getting into the area of the importance of language and yeah. uh, how uh, everything is coded through uh, it I, I said i had a, a very interesting discussion with uh, professor ahmad maboub and mm -hmm. we talked a lot about symbology and how people you know beginning with the thought but if they have no thought then there's no way that then there's nothing mm -hmm. for them to say mm -hmm. and then once they say it then they have to learn how to say it best so mm -hmm. my area is not psychology but mm -hmm. in terms of psychology do you do you teach do you have classes and in, in linguistics or mostly i'm currently a research scientist doing research so i'm not teaching right now I used to teach when I was doing my dissertation, <laughs> but yeah, it's been a while. 
And so in your, in your classes, did uh, this point come up, like the importance of um, language encoding thought? And yes. do, you, do you have any, do you have any uh, things that you could recommend to maybe graduate level psychology teachers? The linguist first, I always want to stay away from the supper wharf hypothesis, um, which I find to be quite damaging. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. It suggests, or it's this thought that perhaps um, the structure of language affects its speaker's worldview or cognition. So this, <laughs> this would mean something like what we see, maybe we see it in like, you know, just um, a journalist does some little puff piece that's like words you don't have in such and such language. Um, and that can be really damaging because then it gets into this idea that some communities or peoples are cognitively more advanced. And, and so it, it becomes, again, it goes back to, to really, you're talking about the people and it's an indictment of the people and it becomes a deficit model all over again. Well, the Sapir Wolf uh, hypothesis um, kind of explains the last two decades of me living in Japan. There are so many. Really? Well, be because of the way that uh, the, the language itself is coded in symbology in mm -hmm. like kanji, the same as in, mm -hmm. same as in Chinese. And this, I, I get this from my wife quite a lot. Like, well, in, in England, you don't have this concept and like, well, we do, but it, it's spread over several different concepts. Yeah, but it's not, it's not, mm. it's not, it's not this. Mm. Um, and in, in reality, that kind of uh, in the Japanese context makes it kind of appear that the Japanese have a, you know, have a, have a deeper understanding about this kind of metacognition of uh, their psychology than uh, Anglophone countries do or, or Francophone countries do. Right. Um, and they may be right, uh, because I've, not, I've done no research to say that that isn't correct. Mm -hmm. But I'm always cognizant of the fact that a lot of it, being a being a high context communicative culture mm -hmm. a lot of uh, a conversation can be reduced to a single word or a single phrase mm -hmm. and everyone in the room just kind of nods and says <laughs> yes that's correct um whereas i'm in the corner going did i sorry did i miss something mm -hmm. <laughs> so, right uh, and i i think that that's something that when it comes to people who are not, it, it comes back to, it, um, don't worry, I'm going to bring it to a question in a second. But when we were talking about the Department of Education and where funding goes mm -hmm. and things like that, uh, oftentimes decisions about funding are made by people who don't understand education or don't understand psychology and don't understand ling linguistics. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy to buy into a concept that makes it very easy to explain. Oh, yes, yes. Whereas the concept of education or the concept of psychology or concept of linguistics is very difficult to explain. So it's why I gave you the question about if you had the money, where would you put the money? So mm -hmm. I guess this is my, my final question. Um, where are you going with your, with your research? And, and do you hope to have uh, an impact on uh, educational policy, um, uh, university mm -hmm. policy or, or, or wider social policy in the future? Absolutely. And I think that my podcast, luckily I have this podcast that is about this very thing, um, is going to be a, a tool in this because I'll be able to talk about it along the way. 
um, and people will listen to it because they like our podcast for, you know, what we do and, and they'll hear about what I'm doing. Um, and most people who even like follow me on social media already know what I'm doing with this. Um, I want to continue this thread that I keep finding that I'm finding, um, because it is showing that it has so many different repercussions throughout our society. Um, I hope to change some minds in the ivory tower with my, with my peer reviewed journals, um, peer, peer reviewed journal articles, um, which again, by the way, you can get the paywall on my website because uh, wouldn't that be funny if it was behind a paywall and you couldn't get it. Um, so <laughs> it's there for you all. Um, but yes, I do want to uh, write some more um, uh, articles that will unfortunately be um, behind a paywall, but I will always make them available <laughs> and um, change minds like I did with my my dissertation advisor and, and, and current um, um, PI or, um, you know, where, uh, where people in the uh, ivory tower will stop and say, hey, I'm on, I'm on this grants panel and you know, we don't have enough voices in here that can say, point out things because we only have one point of view or we only have our lived experiences. Um, and so maybe we should like look at the table and who's here with us and who gets to decide on these things. And then I hope via the podcasting too, that it opens up, I would have never known that, you know, these type of decisions are made a certain way or that people were doing these, this type of research that is so offensive because they could be like, Hey, that's my family. They too can be like, uh, call their child's school and say, Hey, what are, what are your policies? Like, what do you do with, you know, students that are learning another language or what are the policies here? What are they being motivated by? Maybe a parent does that, um, you know, the, someone else knows the the director of a nonprofit that deals with children and families um and they heard the podcast uh and they're like hey listen to this okay you know like it i wanted the podcast to be just this little i hope that that's the kind of snowball effect that we'll have and that's what's good about podcasting and listen like this conversation we're having this these are the type of conversations i have all the time yeah. um but what there's no mic and so podcasting allows people to hear our chat. And so I, I just hope it keeps snowballing forward. Well, me too. And that's one of the um, things that got me into this project in, in the first place, that there mm -hmm. are people whose voices I would like other people who are not in the field to hear, because Absolutely. I think they have, they have a lot to say. Uh, and thank you very much uh, for your time today. So we've been speaking today with uh, Dr. Megan Figaro from the Department of Psychology at the University of Arizona. The paper that we've been speaking about is Podcasting Past the Paywall, How Diverse Media Allows More Equitable Participation in Linguistic Science. Just put that into Google Scholar and you will be reading it in no time at all. Uh, she also has the podcast, The Vocal Fries. And if you want to, even if you want to listen, please, don't be an asshole. Uh, thank you very much for your time today, Megan. And I look forward to, I hope, speaking to you again in the future. Thank you so much. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, 
and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.